and I call them inside the consulate. I get number from the internet and I call them to ask about Jamal. And I ask him, I'm waiting in front of the doors. My name is, is Hatice. I am fiance of Jamal. Where is Jamal? Where is Jamal? That was the simple plaintive question that Atiche Chengez posed to a security guard at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul late on the afternoon of October 2nd, 2018. A soft-spoken Turkish graduate student, Atiche was the fiancé of the famed Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. She had accompanied him to the consulate that day and waited patiently for hours while he went inside and never came out. Moments after she posed her question, the security guard emerged to question her. He came out, yeah. And he asked me who you are, again, the same questions. But he was really fear in his face. He shocked. And then he told me there is no one inside the consulate. What's going through your mind? Scared. Scared a lot. And then I, I felt my, my body is cold. Colder, colder, and my heart uh, was racing. And then I sat, uh, sat down a little bit to, to understand what he said. What can I do now? What Atiche didn't know is that when Jamal walked into the consulate that day, a team of Saudi assassins had been waiting for him, armed with lethal drugs and a bone saw. An international mystery with a growing demand for answers. An investigation is now underway to try to find Jamal Khashoggi. And if he's not alive, then it is the Saudis who would know what happened. Saudi Arabia is facing international criticism. Saudi Arabia denied Jamal Khashoggi had been killed. We have made it very clear that Saudi Arabia's government is not involved in this. The government now says he died in a fist fight. This was an unfortunate accident. I was expecting we can't save Jamal. I couldn't believe he died. What do you want to see done? We, we know a lot of things about uh, this crime, but no one can do anything against the, the killers. There has not been any justice until now. More than this, for me, I'm wondering why they kill Jamal? Jamal Khashoggi's murder provoked a crisis in U.S.-Saudi relations unlike any that had come before it. Khashoggi was this country's most prominent journalist who was writing for one of America's premier newspapers when he was lured to that consulate in Istanbul to be brutally slaughtered. But Atiche's haunting question still hangs over his murder. Why? And just as important, why and how did his killers get away with it? With new documents, including the notes of secret Saudi interrogations of the assassins and voices you haven't heard before, we're going to try to answer those questions on this, the new season of Conspiracy Land, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi. My name is Michael Isikoff, the host of Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land. And if you've followed this podcast over the last two years, you know we've spent a lot of time debunking conspiracy theories. In season one, we followed the case of Seth Rich, the young Democratic National Committee staffer who was murdered on the streets of Washington, D.C., and the outlandish theory that he was assassinated by gunmen hired by Hillary Clinton after selling secrets to WikiLeaks. In season two, we dissected the claim that MSNBC TV anchor Joe Scarborough had killed a young female staffer 21 years ago and covered it up. A lie spread by Donald Trump after they had a political falling out, and then echoed by QAnon in the Twitterverse. It was only a short hop, skip, and a jump from those wild claims to the Stop the Steal movement and the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. The kind of paranoid, convoluted thinking that has made the label conspiracy theorist a near-universal put-down in American politics. But this year's season about Jamal Khashoggi is different. The more one digs into his murder, the more it becomes clear. This was the result of a real-life conspiracy. 
A conspiracy involving a tiger team of hitmen, a menacing Svengali-like figure who directed them, and Saudi Arabia's ruthless and all-powerful de facto head of state, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, otherwise known as MBS. And the web is much larger than one murder. There was a conspiracy of global surveillance, all for the purpose of hunting down and silencing voices critical of the Saudi regime. We'll hear how Saudi Arabia conducted covert influence operations on U.S. soil, surveilling dissidents, even, according to the FBI, recruiting spies inside one of this country's biggest social media companies. I think MBS saw it as a moment to brag, saying, yeah, it was us, we did that. We have our guy at Twitter. And all this against the backdrop of a conspiracy of silence. The highest officials of the American government turned a blind eye or looked the other way, while the kingdom was throwing gobs of cash at politicians and lobbyists in Washington, bankrolling think tanks and presidential libraries, and most importantly, buying American weapons by the boatload. They're buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of things from this country. We are with Saudi Arabia. We're staying with Saudi Arabia. And pulling all the strings, the young crown prince himself, tapped by his father to become the next king of Saudi Arabia. Dubbed a visionary reformer by many in the U.S. government, he was also a ruthless dictator-in-waiting. And he was determined to remove any obstacles, whether they be family members, activists, or journalists, that might stand in his way. An intelligence report from the United States confirming what we had already believed to be true, and it says, we assess that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey, to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I have zero question in my mind that the uh, Crown Prince, MBS, ordered the killing. If he was in front of a jury, he would be convicted in 30 minutes. It turns out some conspiracies are real. We'll also explore the mystery of the man at the center of this saga. Who really was Jamal Khashoggi? The answers might surprise you. He had a remarkable, if enigmatic, life story. Time and again, he seemed to pop up zealot-like at critical moments that changed the course of history in the Middle East. By the end of his life, Khashoggi had become a fierce and fearless critic of MBS's harsh crackdowns, making him for many a symbol of resistance to authoritarian tyranny. But he was also, as some of his friends told me, a man of contradictions. Layers and layers of contradictions that would have made him a worthy subject for a novel. He was very uh, skeptical and cynical. I would say something about the Middle East, and he'd kind of do a, oh, come now, you don't really believe that, do you? Khashoggi has been hailed as a man of peace. And yet he first got public attention inside Saudi Arabia when he championed the cause of the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan, posing for a picture carrying a shoulder-held, rocket-propelled grenade launcher that ran in a Saudi newspaper next to that of a man who was then his good friend. Osama bin Laden. How many times do you think that you spent with bin Laden? Many, many, many times. Mm-hmm. I spent uh, travels with him. I stayed in his camps, uh, slept in the same cave in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. stayed in his home in Peshawar. Khashoggi's murder unquestionably made him a martyr for press freedom. Yet the idea that he was a dissident, as he was described in a widely praised documentary about his case, was one rejected by Khashoggi himself throughout his life. Indeed, for a chunk of his career, he was a paid spokesman and spin doctor for a harsh, anti-democratic Saudi monarchy. Jamal Khashoggi was a mouthpiece for the Saudi regime for three decades. And he was sometimes doing more than that, while reporting to a former chief of Saudi intelligence. Jamal was in charge, you know, in some cases he was given missions to go do. I mean, secret missions, dealing with people, some very strange characters, especially dealing with um, Islamist networks. I remember I used to call him super spy. And his personal life was just as complicated. Khashoggi had gone to the consulate that day to pick up records showing he was divorced from his wife back in Saudi Arabia, thereby allowing him to marry Hatice under Turkish law. But there's more to that story as well. Just four months before his murder, on June 2nd, 2018, he had married another woman in an Islamic ceremony in Northern Virginia, an Egyptian flight attendant for the Emirati's airline. 
never mentioning a word of this to his new wife-to-be in Istanbul. If somebody sits across from you when you're interviewing people about Jamal and tells you that Jamal told them everything, they're 100% lying to you. Jamal gave nobody a full view of his life. He kept all of it with himself and he gave different people the things that they needed to know. There is, in short, a lot to unravel here. Over the next eight episodes, we'll explore Khashoggi's secret lives and his brutal death. We'll reveal the tangled dealings that placed him in the middle of geopolitical struggles in the Middle East. And we'll follow the strange evolution of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, in which he was often a player and ultimately a victim. And we're going to start off by telling you what we do know about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi in the consulate that day. And we should warn you, it's not for the faint-hearted. And we're also going to examine the role of the man who, more than anybody, made it happen. There's no question that Khashoggi's murder grew out of his clashes with Saudi Arabia's brash and impulsive crown prince. But every ruler needs an enforcer. And for MBS, it was a dark and sinister co-conspirator, an operative that could have been lifted straight out of a James Bond film. This is episode one, The Henchman. In the fall of 2017, Jamal Khashoggi and his friend Mohammed Sultan stopped by a Persian restaurant, Rose Kebab, in the northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. They ordered some of their favorite dishes for takeout, chicken and lamb kebab, eggplant, and fresh bread. I'll do the, the chicken sultan, yeah. With rice? Um, yeah, just light rice. Or can I do half rice, half salad? Sure. Sultan was an unlikely new friend of Khashoggi's, a personable young man, then 30, born in Egypt, the son of an Islamic scholar. He grew up in the Midwest, playing high school basketball and graduating from Ohio State. Sultan was also a passionate human rights activist. When he flew back to Cairo to protest the 2013 military coup in his country, Sultan was arrested, imprisoned, and tortured, an all-too-common phenomenon in this saga. A few years later, after he was released thanks to U.S. protests, he introduced himself to Khashoggi at a conference in Washington. He was thrilled when the famed Saudi journalist, nearly 30 years his senior, eagerly greeted him, gave him his cell phone number, and expressed interest in getting together. And to me, that was a big, like, oh, wow, like, I have Jamal Khashoggi's number, you know? The guy is one, he is the most prominent Arab writer, period. Nobody still rises to his level until now. By 2017, Khashoggi was living in exile in Northern Virginia, and he and Sultan formed an instant bond, fellow outcasts from brutal dictatorial regimes. They shared meals, swapping ideas on how to change the politics of the Mideast. Sultan even gave Khashoggi dating advice. It's a big teddy bear. He's a gentle giant with a penchant for freedom. <laughs> But Sultan didn't fully glimpse the full measure of his new pal until that day they went to Rose Kebab. While in the car on his way back, with their bags filled with kebab and bread, Khashoggi glanced at his iPhone. He saw a Twitter message from a man who struck instant fear into any Saudi who dared to cross Mohammed bin Salman, the country's crown prince. He says, uh, oh wow, I just got a, a, a DM from Saud al-Qahtani asking me to call. Who is Saud Saud, he's the enforcer of Mohammed bin Salman. He's the right-hand man of, of Mohammed bin Salman. He is his closest confidant and enforcer. We're on the way to my house for dinner, and Jamal, Jamal got, you know, he was scared. How did he indicate he was scared? He, he literally, his hands were visibly shaking. And he was like, okay, I'll call him when, you know, and he was kind of getting a little flustered. He was like, okay, let's just, I'll just call him when we get to the house. And so the second indication was, you know, as we were walking into my house, he says, when I get on the call, I want you to record it. That's someone who's scared. Someone who wants record of the call he was about to have with the enforcer of the strongest person in his country. It's not widely known, but Khashoggi and Katani had a long and rocky history. 
More than 15 years earlier, Katani was an aspiring journalist who sent opinion pieces to Khashoggi when he was editor of one of Saudi Arabia's leading newspapers, Al-Watan. Khashoggi rejected them, and it's fair to say neither had warm memories of each other. Jamal, one friend told me, viewed Katani with contempt, someone who was incompetent and not terribly smart. So it was galling, to say the least, when Katani emerged years later as a high-ranking figure inside the royal court, who trashed Saudi dissidents on Twitter and issued veiled threats and edicts. This included one to Khashoggi in 2016 to stop tweeting after he made some mildly critical comments about the recently elected American president, Donald Trump. So we get into the house. Jamal asks me to quiet the kids. Um, I send them down to the basement and I get my phone ready and he calls. No answer. Then he gets a call back from Saud. So he basically signals to me to start recording. He answers, puts it on speaker, and I start recording. Um, my recording was one minute and 42 seconds. This was a turning point for me, my relationship with Jamal. Because Jamal, literally the guy started off, Saud started off saying, I'm calling at the request of His Royal Highness, Mohammed bin Salman. I, uh, he wanted me to send his gratitude uh, an appreciation for the tweet that you tweeted about lifting the woman drive and thanking the leadership. Khashoggi was relieved, but as Sultan remembers, he immediately pivoted. And so Jamal, I can see it in his eyes. There was like a spark in his eyes where he saw an opportunity. And he says, please convey my regards to his royal highness. And please do explain to him that we are patriots. We love our country. We love our leadership. And because we love our leadership, we will compliment when a positive step is taken, but we will also criticize when a negative one is taken. And then, according to Sultan, Khashoggi started raising, by name, Saudi dissidents who had recently been arrested as part of a crackdown on political criticism ordered by Katani's boss, the crown prince. He's naming them. He's naming them. And for me, I literally, I was baffled because... He had just built rapport with the strongest person in the goddamn country. The guy was calling him to tell him, you have just earned brownie points with the crown prince. And at that instant, he uses those brownie points and that opportunity to advocate on behalf of people who were unjustly imprisoned. Sultan had been warned that he should be wary of Khashoggi. The journalist had for years been close to the Saudi regime, his own mother told him. Hey, be careful of this guy. He's just trying to get close to you. He used to work for the Mukhabarat. That's the Saudi intelligence service. All of those, all, all of those things, all of those fears were just, they came to rest because I saw a moment where I saw this man for who he was as an honorable man who used when he didn't need to. That's the whole thing. He really did not need to use that moment to advocate on behalf of others. He didn't need to, but he did. And for me, that that quieted my skepticism of him. So what happened once he brought that up with literally, Saud al-Qahtani? Saud al-Qahtani literally gave him the company line, was like, everything will come out in time. There's proof that these guys violated the law. But he just gave him the company line bullshit. And then the conversation just dwindled. And, and, and You know, that's a conversation ender. He just... We got off the phone and Jamal asked me to delete the, the recording. Hmm. What was his takeaway from this phone call? Did he feel good after it or was uh, yes, he concerned? He, there was a huge sigh of relief. We went and he ate more than he usually did. <laughs> <laughs> and he was feeling pretty good yeah. at that point. Yeah. About yes. his... He felt like he had done something he hadn't done before. And I forgot to mention, literally almost the entire time he was holding the phone up because it was on speaker, his hands were shaking the entire time. Um, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage. I, I, for me, that's the epitome of courage, is not to do something when it's convenient, to do something when it's inconvenient. That despite his fear, he overcame it. And while his hands are shaking, he still did the right thing which to me is, that's what kind of man he was. And you could hear Saud al-Qahtani speak. Yes. 
What was that like? What was he? You can hear a little bit of a frustrated just tone. There was definitely a tone change towards the end of the call where it was like he was in a hurry to get off the phone. It's worth at this point exploring a little more about Katani because he's a critical figure in this whole saga. A dour apparatchik with a stooped shoulder whose thuggish activities date back years and lead straight to the doorstep of the crown prince, MBS. Well, we used to call him Rasputin. We called him Goldfinger. I called him Salacious Crumb, who's the sort of pet of Jabba the Hutt. That's Kirsten Fontenrose, who at the time was at the Trump White House as the director of Gulf Affairs at the National Security Council, overseeing U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia. And Saud al-Qahtani was very much on her radar screen. We knew that he was a loyalist to Mohammed bin Salman and to nothing else, not to the royal family, not to the Saudi government, not to Saudi as a nationality, not to the kingdom's interests. He was hand-selected because probably of his lack of other loyalties and put at the elbow to sort of be the personal security guarantor of Mohammed bin Salman. He's just plain loyal and, and ruthless. Katani first came to the attention of U.S. officials when, perhaps because of his journalistic background, as undistinguished as it was, he landed a position under the previous king, Abdullah, to oversee media monitoring for the royal court. Then, in 2015, Abdullah died, and with the ascension of his brother Salman to the throne, Katani's portfolio expanded under the direct patronage of MBS. Katani, says Fontenrose, reached out to foreign firms to acquire hacking technologies, tools that could be used to track MBS's political enemies, real and imagined, and conduct what amounted to electronic warfare against them. So things for surveilling populations, things for secure communications, things for hacking, spyware. And by acquiring these and the, and the talent to use them, he built this this sort of fence around the royal family and around Mohammed bin Salman that made them feel like they would know if there were any threats to their stability. And this made him invaluable. And as his power grew, he began showing up everywhere, advising on the war in Yemen and supervising harsh interrogations of Saudi princes imprisoned by MBS in Riyadh's Ritz-Carlton Hotel. And he was only there because Mohammed bin Salman felt that he looked after his interests. And he was handed the more unsavory roles uh, and, and took to them with a plum. One of those roles was scouting the landscape of Washington's K Street corridor, looking for just the right lobbyists and influence peddlers to burnish the kingdoms and MBS's profile inside the United States. Starting in the fall of 2015, with the ascension of Salman, the Saudi government went on a remarkable spending spree in Washington, doling out millions of dollars to the capital's most elite lobbying firms. Squire Patton Boggs, whose principals included former Senate Majority Leader Trent Lodd and Louisiana Senator John Brough, BGR, headed by former Republican National Committee Chairman and Mississippi Governor Haley Barber, and the Podesta Group, owned by the brother of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign chairman. We looked at the contracts for all of these deals, posted on the website of the Justice Department, and one thing leaps out. In every case, they were signed on the Saudi end by the very same Saud al-Qahtani, listing himself as the president of the Center for Studies in Media Affairs at the Royal Court. But it's Qatani's role in directing Saudi Arabia's electronic warfare campaign against dissidents that is the most relevant for this story. Thanks to his electronic snooping, Al-Qatani was able to track the movements of another thorn in the crown prince's side, a charismatic women's rights activist named Lujain al-Wathul. Even while he was moving to lift the ban on women's driving, MBS wanted to make sure no activist got the credit, lest that send the wrong message to his subjects about the potential for civil protest. So, in March 2018, seven months before Khashoggi's murder, Lujane was driving in the United Arab Emirates when, according to her family, security forces pulled her over, blindfolded her, and loaded her onto a private plane that flew her to Saudi Arabia where she was promptly thrown in prison. So she was driving um, on the highway and um, many cars uh, surround her car and uh, they tell her that they got orders from authorities to take her. Lina Alwathul is Lujane's sister. 
Tell me about what Lejeune told your parents when they visited her in the prison in Jeddah. I mean, when she, she first came to them, she could barely walk. She was shaking so badly. And um, she had her face uh, and her neck full of uh, red marks. And then after a couple of visits, she told them that um, during this period, uh, she, she got tortured. A U.S. Congressional Human Rights Committee later released a report citing evidence that Lujain was among 10 women's rights advocates who had been subjected to torture, including electrocution, flogging, waterboarding, and sexual abuse, as well as threats of rape and murder. And who's in charge of doing all this to her? Walid, Lujain's brother, a Saudi expatriate who lives in Toronto, takes up the story from here. When her parents press for details... She, she started to cry. She, she was frightened that she, she would have to show some part of her bodies where her legs, for example, were burned and blackened. And then uh, this is where uh, she started to release more information about uh, the involvement of Saud al-Ghattani. She saw him. He was literally in front of her, threatening her with uh, murder and rape, basically. So he basically said, I will kill you, and I will cut you into pieces, and I will throw you uh, into the sewage system, basically. But before that, I would rape you. Was he overseeing the torture? Was he directing it? He was greeting her, and uh, the masked men were uh, basically standing up behind him and they can you can show them because he was sitting in a in the electric chair and uh, basically uh, they were just um, waiting the order uh, or waiting him to finish the conversation before they start the, the torture and he's saying to your sister I will rape you it's unbelievable um, it's unimaginable so just to be clear, the very same Saudi official who was signing deals with Washington's most prestigious high-powered lobbying firms was, according to Lejeune's account to her family, overseeing her torture for advocating equal rights for Saudi women. And for the next part of our story, it's worth repeating those other alleged words from Al-Qahtani, I will cut you into pieces. Katani, who is being sued in the United States over his alleged role in Khashoggi's murder, has a U.S. lawyer. I reached out to him about the allegations by Lujain Al-Wathul's family. He declined to comment on that and anything else in this podcast. In retrospect, it's clear there was nobody Al-Katani was tracking more closely than Jamal Khashoggi, especially after that testy phone call the day he and Mohammed Sultan got takeout from Rose Kebab. Jamal had become increasingly outspoken and critical of MBS's crackdown on any and all forms of dissent. That spring, he engaged in a spirited debate on Al Jazeera with a regime defender, Ali Shahabi. Challenged about his own years-long loyalty to an oppressive Saudi monarchy, Jamal sought to draw a distinction between then and now. Look, I got fired from my job twice because I was pushing for reform in Saudi Arabia. It wasn't that easy, but okay. people were not being put in jails. There was a breathing space. No, permit we, me, we me just. Okay, hold on. It's point it is easy to sit and say we need, particularly in front of American audience, we need more freedom, we need more... It's, these are golden things. Everybody loves them. Okay, let, but Ali, the question Ali, is, Ali, you Jamal have to be respond. practical. Ali, I'm Jamal not respond. asking for democracy. I'm asking for people to be allowed to speak. This is... Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm asking for the minimum. But Jamal was doing more than speaking out. He was also spending ever more time in Turkey, his family's ancestral homeland, and a country that was then a fierce regional rival of the Saudi regime. This was thanks in large part to a relationship he had begun with a young Turkish woman, Hatice Cengiz. By September of 2018, Khashoggi was making plans to move to Istanbul. He and Hatice were talking about getting married. But first he needed his divorce records from Riyadh to make it happen. According to Turkish law, if you are a foreign and you want to get married with a Turkish lady, you have to get 
paper to say I'm single right now because Turkey as a country doesn't allow to get married more than one time. Atice Cengiz is a Turkish academic working on a PhD in the politics of the Persian Gulf. She had met Khashoggi at a conference in Istanbul the previous May. Like his young Egyptian friend, Mohammed Sultan, she was starstruck. They exchanged emails, started talking and meeting during Khashoggi's increasingly frequent trips to Istanbul, and by August, never mind that other marriage to the flight attendant in northern Virginia we heard about earlier, they were engaged. Jamal bought an apartment in Istanbul and was even exploring becoming a Turkish citizen. But there was a hitch. To get a civil marriage license in Turkey, he needed to get documents from Saudi Arabia proving he was no longer married to his previous wife in that country. And then Jamal was need this paper, because he's from Saudi Arabia. How he showed this? There's a two-way to go to Saudi Arabia. And then also there is a second way to go to a consulate. There's always been a question about why Khashoggi needed to go to the consulate in Istanbul at all. U.S. intelligence officials later learned that Khashoggi had actually first inquired about picking up his divorce records from the Saudi embassy in Washington, and he got turned down per orders from the Saudi ambassador at the time, Khalid bin Salman, or KBS, the crown prince's brother. Here's Kirsten Fontenrose. What we understood was that KBS had been given that instruction from Riyadh. Mm, sorry, we can't give him these these papers in, in D.C. You're going to have to tell him he has to get them in Istanbul. Hmm. And why do you think they uh, gave those instructions? I can only imagine because they knew they could not either kill him or rendition him from Washington. Far better to do it in Istanbul a city filled with intrigue and imprisoned journalists under the repressive regime of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. But Atice insists Jamal was not worried. I mean, uh, if they try to take his passport, if they uh, try to uh, maybe arrest him, but what he told me, it's impossible because we are in Turkey and it's a consulate. It's a consulate, I mean, of official place. And I'm really known people. And also you are with me. He was saying these this things. On September 28, 2018, Khashoggi paid his first visit to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, seeking those divorce records he needed back in Saudi Arabia. Atice went with him and waited outside for 45 minutes. He was greeted cordially and told to come back the following Monday, October 2nd, to pick up the records. And he comes out and tells you what? Yes, he was smiling, and he went in a big smile, and he told me everything is okay, and they will give me the paper, and we drank a tea, coffee, and they asked my wife, and they asked, oh, it's a good idea, congratulations with the Turkish lady. Jamal, upbeat and encouraged, then headed to the airport to fly off for a weekend conference in London. His plane took off at 2.40 p.m. Two minutes later, a security guard at the consulate made the first of two phone calls to Riyadh. He wanted to know whether a Saudi intelligence official named Mahir Abdulaziz Mutreb, often seen as part of the security entourage of the Crown Prince, had received the video images he had just sent of the visitor to the consulate that morning. It's known that he is one of the people sought, the security official says, according to audio surveillance conducted by Turkish intelligence. Then, that night, at 7.08 p.m., the Saudi Consul General was recorded telling an associate that he had heard from the head of state security. They needed a member of his staff, he said, for a special and top-secret mission. The team assigned to that mission included seven members of something called the Rapid Intervention Force, the elite personal security squad for the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, answerable only to him. And the man placed in charge of that team, who briefed its members before they left, and, according to U.S. intelligence officials, planned and personally supervised the execution of everything that took place next, was the Crown Prince's personal henchman, the Rasputin of the Royal Court, Saud al-Qahtani. I truly believe that no one should get away with murdering a journalist. Well, we can say no one should get away with murder, period. Absolutely. (laughs) But 
you know, in, in the context of uh, killing of journalists, I think it's particularly important. Agnes Calamard, a French lawyer, was the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Extrajudicial Killings. Her investigation into the events in Istanbul remains the most authoritative public account of what happened. As she disclosed in a report into the matter, five Saudi security agents flew commercial from Riyadh to Istanbul on September 29th, the day after Khashoggi's first visit to the consulate. Then, at 3.30 a.m. on Monday, October 2nd, a private Gulfstream jet, later discovered to be owned by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund and controlled by the Crown Prince, landed in Istanbul with nine additional Saudi agents, most of them members of MBS's security detail. But there was one unusual and last-minute addition. A forensic doctor from the Saudi Ministry of Interior named Dr. Salah Mohammed Tubegi. And here's another detail that's not in Calamard's report. When we place the tail number for the plane into an app that tracks flights, it shows the plane made a late-night stopover in Cairo, Egypt, for reasons that will soon become clear. Calamard says the original Saudi plan may well have been to kidnap Khashoggi and bring him back to Saudi Arabia where he would have undoubtedly been imprisoned and forced to recant his criticisms of the crown prince. But she adds, once on the ground, those plans had changed. So I, I could not conclude whether murdering Mr. Khashoggi was the first and only objective. It is way possible that the first uh, motivation and first task was to kidnap Mr. Khashoggi and that his murder became plan B. What it's clear to me is that at least 24 hours before he was murdered, murder was part of the plan. When Calamard released her report, the Saudi foreign minister rejected her findings as baseless conjecture, sticking to the government's official story that Khashoggi's death was a tragic accident committed by low-level rogue operatives. But in the course of reporting this podcast, we discovered the notes of secret questioning of the killers by Saudi interrogators that back up Calamard's conclusions even more than she knew. These notes were taken by Turkish embassy observers who were permitted to sit in on a closed-door Saudi trial of the perpetrators, during which prosecutors made statements based on confessions made by the assassins during those secret interrogations. These notes were then turned over to Turkish prosecutors, who entered them unnoticed as part of over 100 pages of evidence included in Turkey's ongoing trial in absentia of Khashoggi's killers. These records from inside Saudi Arabia have been ignored until now, likely because they were part of a trial in Riyadh that has been widely dismissed as a whitewash, since no high-level officials, much less the crown prince, were convicted or even questioned. But I had them translated into English, and they are revealing and damning nonetheless, filled with intriguing details never before reported. They show that Katani personally briefed the members of the Saudi hit team before they took off for Istanbul, telling them Khashoggi had been, quote, co-opted by organizations and states hostile to the kingdom, and that his presence outside Saudi Arabia represents a threat to national security. His return to Saudi Arabia, Katani is reported to have said, would be, quote, a significant achievement of the mission. That would suggest, if it can be believed, that the original purpose of the operation was to kidnap Khashoggi, the kind of rendition the Saudis had been carrying out for years under a secret order, and similar to what happened to women's rights activist Lujain al-Wathul. But then, these notes show, the plan did indeed change over the weekend. Mutreb, the Saudi intelligence agent placed in charge of the team on the ground, reviewed the layout of the consulate and quickly concluded that it would be, quote, difficult to forcefully take Khashoggi out if, as expected, he resisted. At that point, Mutrib shelved the plan to snatch the journalist and, quote, he decided to kill Jamal Khashoggi. There's an unsettling, somewhat creepy backstory to Mutrib's role. At the Saudi trial, one of the prosecutors said Mutrib had been selected for the job precisely because of his previous relationship with Khashoggi, apparently to lull him into complacency. 
The two once worked together in the Saudi embassy in London, part of a small group that would regularly go for afternoon tea at a nearby hotel in Mayfair after Friday prayers. Yet here he was, nearly 15 years later, a leader of the hit squad directing his former colleague's murder. Whatever personal ties may once have existed, Mutreb was a trained intelligence agent who, according to U.S. officials, was following orders. He was taking instructions at every step of the way from the henchman overseeing the operation, Saud al-Qahtani. Khashoggi flew back from London early on the morning of October 2nd landing at the Istanbul airport at just about the same time as the plane carrying his assassins. He headed straight to Atiche's apartment. He later checked in with the consulate and was told to come on over to pick up his divorce records, which would be ready for him by 1 p.m. He was, says Atiche, happy, hopeful, and uh, he was smiling a lot in that morning. And he was excited about the future. Yes, absolutely. Once again, Hatice accompanied him to the consulate. You take the cab over to the consulate. Was there any apprehension at all no. about going into the consulate? Of course, no. No, no. He was really happy when they ho- called him. He smiled and he told them, okay, I'm coming now. At 1.02 p.m., just minutes before Khashoggi's arrival, the Turkish bugs inside the consulate picked up a conversation among the members of the hit team. Kalamar and her team of investigators were among a small number of outsiders granted access to the audio tapes, permitted to listen to them in a conference room of Turkey's intelligence agency in Ankara. And the details you're about to hear are gruesome. The chilling part is when they discuss how a body is being dismembered, Uh, what will be the difficulties of dismembering a body on the floor, quotation mark, uh, how heavy body parts are and how they can be carried out. So all of that is being explained by Dr. Tubegi to Mutreb. So Dr. Tubegi explained that dismembering the body should be easy, that joint will be separated, it is not a problem, but um, the, the body is heavy, and it is also the first time he, the person speaking, explained that he will cut on the ground. If he goes on to say, if we take plastic bags and cut the body into pieces, it will be finished, uh, and we will wrap each piece in the plastic bag. But they j- then explain that plastic bags may not be sufficient, that they will need something more heavy, uh, leather bags, in order to carry part of uh, the body. There is also reference to the difficulties that cutting skin represent as opposed to unjointing a body. Isn't that pretty powerful evidence that they intended to kill him that day? Uh, so that's why I get quite irritated with those that are prepared to adopt the, the Saudi proposition that everything was an accident. It sounds preposterous. Oh, it's ridiculous. Frankly, it's ridiculous. And then, at the end of the conversation about chopping up body parts, Mutreb asks a disturbing question. Has the sacrificial animal arrived? I mean, that to me is also very telling, to refer to Mr. Khashoggi as a sacrificial lamb or sacrificial animal. Khashoggi entered the consulate at 1.13 p.m., having once again handed his cell phones to Atiche as she waited outside. He was invited up to the consul general's office on the second floor. Mutreb and his confederates greeted him there. They were there to take him back to Saudi Arabia, they said, and falsely told him there was an order from Interpol, the international police agency, that he be returned to Saudi Arabia to face trial. Khashoggi knew it was all a lie and immediately sensed the danger he was now in. There isn't a case against me. I notified some people outside, he told them. Mutrib demanded that he type a message to his son on his cell phone that he would be returning to Saudi Arabia. 
which, of course, he couldn't do because his cell phones were with the Tiche outside. I will not write anything, he says. And then suddenly, another more ominous demand from Mutrev. Take off your jacket. Tell us what you heard on the tapes right after that. At 1.33, he can be heard saying, um, there is a towel here. He must be pointing to something. What are you going to do? Are you going to give me drugs? As this unfolded, Calamard says, you could... Could very much hear the progression of the fears in his voice. It's more than surprise. It's just shock. The shock uh, that is progressively understanding that those people mean harm to him and that they are prepared to implement their crime in an embassy. At this point, those notes from the secret Saudi interrogations I referred to earlier reveal some incredible details. When Khashoggi understood that he would be given drugs, he, quote, tried to run away, the notes say. At that point, three operatives pinned down the journalist in a chair in the consul general's office. Dr. Tubegi injected Khashoggi in his left arm with 40 milligrams of a powerful illegal narcotic. This, it turns out, was the reason the plane made that late-night stopover in Cairo. It was there that Tubegi had picked up the drug, according to the notes, in, quote, high dosage that would be enough to kill him, unquote. What the drug was and where and from whom the team got it, whether Saudi agents on the ground or, as some suspect, Egyptian intelligence with whom the Saudis have long had close ties, has never been revealed. But the Cairo stopover, confirmed by that online app that tracks flights, suggests for the first time the existence of other accomplices, witting or unwitting. And after Tubegi, the forensic doctor, made that injection, the Turkish audio tapes offer clues into what happened. We hear struggle, we hear noises, we hear uh, sounds being muffled like a noise, a voice, and eventually we hear nothing left. The silence that followed may be the most compelling evidence of all. It was, in short, the proverbial dog that didn't bark in the Sherlock Holmes story. You would have expected that those that injected him become quite worried (laughs) with uh, the fact that he seems to be dying. You would expect the doctor, because even though he's a forensic doctor, he's still a doctor, to try to reanimate him, to do anything so that he doesn't die. But nothing of that is heard. On the contrary, what we hear are sounds of people putting pressure on an individual so that he can, so that he dies. What was it like to listen to this tape? You know, what can I say? You're, you're listening to the tape of somebody being killed. Anyone listening to those tapes will find them pretty awful, and so did I, yeah, and so did my colleagues. Calamard's conclusion was that after being injected by Dr. Tubegi, Khashoggi was suffocated with plastic bags. And then, following the silence, there was a low-level sound that, while Calamard was not sure of it, Turkish intelligence assessed to be a bone saw carving up his body, just as had been discussed prior to his arrival. And then, at 2.53 p.m., one of the Saudi operatives who flew in from Riyadh, A man whose large, heavy body bore a resemblance to the victim was captured on videotape leaving the consulate wearing Khashoggi's clothes and his glasses. The secret Saudi transcripts fill in what happened next. The operative drove to Sultana Hamet Square, one of Istanbul's main tourist attractions in sight of the famous Blue Mosque. He entered a toilet at the mosque and changed back into his own clothes, taking Khashoggi's clothes and his glasses and dropping them in a trash can in the square. The cover-up had begun. We know Khashoggi was last seen 14 days ago now, walking into that Saudi consulate in We want answers about Jamal's disappearance. In, in Turkey. And so, too, had begun a crisis that would rock the U.S.-Saudi alliance like never before. 
Can you imagine us having a relationship with the Saudi government? The facts lead to what we all suspect they will. Uh, I think it'll be very problematic for our relationship going forward. Next on Conspiracy Land. For more than 70 years, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been locked in a highly dysfunctional relationship, driven by oil, American arms, influence, and cash. It's a relationship in which a member of Jamal Khashoggi's own family played a key role, much to Jamal's chagrin. It's the improbable story of a high-flying arms dealer ripped straight from the pages of 1980s excess. In this world-exclusive edition of Lifestyles, we'll explore the fabulous private domains of Adnan Khashoggi, whose globe-trolling existence is so unbelievably lush, it has inspired blockbuster movies and novels, which only pale in comparison to the true story you will see in the next 60 minutes. Jamal Khashoggi's cousin, Adnan Khashoggi, became the symbol of the U.S.-Saudi alliance while living a life of luxury that a certain New York real estate tycoon wanted to emulate. Is that well, what I bought a boat from Adnan Khashoggi, which was formerly called the Nabila, probably the greatest yacht ever built. Adnan Khashoggi lived a flamboyant life filled with wild parties, drugs, and women. So Adnan asked me to be his pleasure wife, and then it took a long time to come to the realization and be able to accept the fact that I had been sold without my knowledge. And all of that left a lasting stain on the Khashoggi name and embarrassed his younger cousin. We'll explore that in episode two, The Arms Dealer's Harem. Conspiracy Land is a production of Skullduggery, the Yahoo News podcast I co-host every week with Yahoo News Editor-in-Chief Dan Clydman and the Brennan Center's Victoria Bassetti. In putting together this series, special thanks to Suzanne Smalley for yeoman's research and tracking down sometimes elusive interview subjects. And as with our past Conspiracy Land productions, a huge shout-out to the folks at Long Story Short. Executive producer Bob Ewell, associate producer Emily Russell, and editor Andrew Strassel, with audio recording and mixing by Aaron Hoffman and Evan Sevilla, and research by Josh Hall and Belinda Shaw. And, of course, LSS Chief Jessica Stewart. None of this could have happened without their invaluable work.